Um, real quickly before we uh, go get into our text today, just want to remind everybody that even though we don't pass a plate, giving is part of our worship, and there's a, a box at, in the lobby by the doors that you can give. That's not really why we're talking about giving today. Just by way of reminder, and you can ask for details uh, later, but there is going to be changes uh, to the way we process online giving. So if you have giving set up, we're going to be walking through some changes as well. But really what we want you to know about this morning is the fact that um, there has been a surge uh, of benevolence requests um, I think in many ways the word is out that Trinity is here and willing to help, and that's a good thing. Uh, but it does mean that uh, our benevolence uh, account is lower and lower all the time. And so um, if you are so inclined to, uh, to give to that fund um, above your regular giving, we would be uh, grateful for that as it serves to meet a lot of community needs, and there's a lot of community needs. Turning to our text now, we come to our third part of Jesus' teaching here, which I've called Great Commission Mission. And yes, Matthew 28 is typically uh, referred to as the Great Commission, but here Jesus is essentially sending out his disciples, initially the 12, and we looked at the texts mainly, or the verses mainly dealing with the commissioning of the 12 disciples into ministry. The reason we're taking this large chunk of Matthew here is because this is our commission to ministry. And I'm not going to talk this morning for the sake of time about all the differences between the initial verses, verses 5 through 16, and why I think that pertains immediately to the disciples, and then verses 17 through 42 to us. We'll see, we'll see a little bit of that, but, but you can listen to last week's sermon or, or we can talk offline. But I do want to highlight three distinct features of these verses that were not in last week's verses. And yes, some of these are the reason why I think they belong to us and not necessarily to the disciples, but I think they're features that we have to understand at the outset. Number one, Jesus indicates to us in verses 17 and 21 through 23 that persecution should be expected. There was no indication that this happened during the apostles' lifetime, but as he's instructing them and us, we're told that that should be seen as the norm for those who enter the kingdom of God. Persecution should be expected. Number two, a feature here in these verses that wasn't in the previous is that there will be a witness to Gentiles. Initially, the, the disciples were just to go to the house of Israel. Uh, we saw that this is because uh, salvation is from the Jews, and so they were ministering to the Jews. Uh, some were believing, some were not. This would ultimately culminate in the plot, the successful plot, to kill Jesus and his resurrection. But we are told here that there is to be a witness to the Gentiles, to the whole world. And thirdly, there is a reference here to the coming of the Son of Man. And this would most certainly be a reference to the future judgment of Christ on the world. To quote uh, D.A. Carson, uh, Don Carson, what he says, and I think this is a great summary, he says, what we see here in short is a witnessing and suffering church. What we see in these verses is a witnessing and suffering church. And so as we look through the verses in this text, I want us to look at four realities of Great Commission ministry. What is the shape of ministry for you and I? Number one, opposition, even persecution, is normal. 
Opposition, even persecution, is normal. Uh, Read with me again. We're going to read each section as we go. Verses 17 through 24. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved." When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his masters. And this happened to the disciples. It happened to what we would then call apostles in Acts, and even to the early church. And and by the way, for most of the church in the world, or at least for much of the church in the world, this is still true. The, the, The church in the world today is still a suffering church. It is still a persecuted church. There are still people who give their lives for their faith. What is the extent of our suffering? How far will this suffering reach in our lives? Well, what Jesus lists here is courts and kings and parents and children and brothers. And I think what we see there, starting with courts and kings, particularly as we consider kings in that day, is the people who seemed the most out of reach. The likelihood of having an audience before a king was pretty low. But then on the exact opposite of that, you have parents and children and brothers. These are the people who we're with every day. In other words, I think what Jesus is getting at is that persecution can come, rejection, opposition can come from anywhere. And verses 24 and 25 are clear. That a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? This section probably should go through verse 25. But the reality is, they persecuted Jesus, and they will persecute us. If they hated him for his message, they will hate us as well. But it's not all bad news. Jesus says this is going to happen, and most of us, at least if you're like me, we hear that and we go, no thanks. I think maybe particularly as, uh, as wealthy Westerners, I certainly know this is true of me, we have a tendency to idolize comfort. And so the idea of persecution and opposition, we go, no thanks. But, but Jesus seems to indicate Two positives of this for us. Number one, in verse 23, look with me there. Jesus says, when, you, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will have not gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Persecution uh, often results in evangelism. 
Persecution drives us to new places. It drives us out of our comfort zone. Sometimes it drives us out of our hometown, as it did the apostles. By the time we get to, uh, I think it's Acts chapter 8, the persecution is so intense in Jerusalem that they're being driven out to the places that Jesus told them to go, to Samaria and, and, and the ends of the earth. In fact, when Christianity first came to China, there was a small church that was formed in one region of China. Uh, the, the government's brilliant idea of what to do with this small, fledgling group of Christians was to deport them to various places in China. Guess what that resulted in? More churches. You would think that, that persecuted underground churches get really, really quiet. They don't. They get very loud. Because their attachments are probably to more right things. It took the stoning of Stephen to get the apostles out of Jerusalem. I'm not saying that the presence, by the way, I want to make a, a clear note here, because there's, there's, there's something we cannot do. We cannot think to ourselves, well, persecution is a bad idea, and persecution results in evangelism, so I'm going to evangelize just to avoid persecution. It doesn't work that way. And so we can't evangelize just for the sake of avoiding persecution. But here's what I am saying. And I'm going to be very brief today and, and, and probably not explain a whole lot um, as deeply as I, I normally would throughout my, uh, my message because we have so many verses today and we have some fixed deadlines on time today. But I'm saying that churches that don't evangelize, if we survey Christian history and even if we survey Scripture, think we can find them in both places. And so I think what we see in history affirms what we see in Scripture, that, that one of two things happens to churches that don't take the call of evangelism seriously. First, persecution comes. And I think that, that what we see throughout history is that the wider the problem of a lack of evangelism, and I don't mean in one single local body. I mean when the church in a nation or a state or a region or an area, when it fails to evangelize, what happens is persecution. That by God's design, he brings difficulty upon his people to, to reorient their priorities and to get them out doing what they're called to do. And secondly, and maybe this is more isolated to individual churches, and there is a boatload of research in the modern age to support this, but if a church doesn't evangelize, to use the words of Jesus in Revelation, its lampstand is removed. The surest way to shutter the doors of a church is to stop sharing the gospel. The first benefit, even if it may not feel like it, <laughs> of opposition and persecution is gospel witness. The second, this is much more uh, attractive to us, the second is the help of the Holy Spirit. Because when that persecution comes, we don't have to worry about what we are to speak or, or to say. Because, verse 20, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. I had somebody uh, at a previous church I worked at uh, ask me all the time, 
hey, you need to train us what to say when persecution comes. And I'm like, the Bible tells us not to worry about that. I know, but persecution's coming. You know, the economy's going to collapse, and there's going to be no more currency. And the guy was, you know, kind of a tinfoil hat-wearing prepper kind of guy. And he was like, always kind of like, the sky is falling. And you got to tell us what to say when the sky falls. And here Jesus is saying, the sky may fall, but when it does, don't worry about it. Because you won't be there alone. My spirit will be with you, and he will speak through you and give you what to say in that time. There is something for us to note about this, and that is that this is a pattern given to us for martyrs, not preachers or teachers. And so we don't get in the pulpit and go, well, the spirit will give me what to say. No, we got to do the work uh, of, of studying a text before we preach it. But number one, Jesus wants us as new covenant believers uh, who are called to live on the mission of sharing the gospel with the lost world, that opposition, even persecution is normal, but that when it comes, when it comes, there is, uh, there is great encouragement to know that, that the result is often the spread of the gospel and the presence of the Spirit. Number two, number two. The second gospel reality, or the second reality of gospel ministry, is that fear is not fitting for believers. Fear is not fitting for believers. This point here is probably the most out of touch with our world today. And I believe that it is the most emphasized part of this whole passage. Because Jesus gives the instructions not to be afraid three times. Three times in this one passage. In fact, fear not, in case you didn't know this, fear not is the single most repeated command in Scripture. I think God knows our propensity to fear. But I think He also knows that our fear creeps in when we fail to trust either his power or his character. When we forget that he is in control and that he is good, fear inevitably ensues. I think Jesus gives us three reasons not to fear in these passages. This is particularly the first one related to the idea of persecution. But in verses 26 and 27, he tells us that have no fear, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven." I think Jesus' three reasons for us not to fear are, number one, the truth will be revealed. 
When people malign you, when they speak falsely of you, when they persecute you, when they, like they did to Jesus, bear false witness about you, even in court, and even if it's not until the day of judgment before God, the truth will be revealed. Now, here's the catch. And I think this is really important throughout this whole thing. Is that Jesus is clear that when we are persecuted, when people think badly of us, it must be because we are his witnesses to the world and not because we've behaved badly. Because that's going to be revealed too. Sometimes it gets revealed very quickly. We, we behave badly and we get caught. Sometimes it may not happen until some point later. I don't know. But the reality is the truth will be revealed. And the only time that we can have a settled and sure peace that even though the world may stand against me and think badly of me or maybe even think badly of my Savior, the only time we can stand up and say, well, I'm okay whatever may come because the truth will be revealed is when we've behaved rightly in our witness. But someday the truth will be revealed. And so it doesn't matter what people think about us. Secondly, Jesus tells us that the soul is far more important than the body. Yes, we might be persecuted. Yes, we might even be martyred. But the truth of the matter is, what happens to us ultimately is in God's control. We don't need to fear those who can kill the body because there's nothing they can do to our soul. One of my favorite quotes throughout the years is a quote from a a pretty popular pastor who said, um, the only thing that death can do to the believer is deliver him to Jesus. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, if he has secured your place in his kingdom by the death and resurrection of his son, and you've trusted in that, yeah, somebody might come along and they might kill you, but all they can do is deliver you to perfect paradise in the presence of Christ. We don't have to fear. And thirdly, verses 29 through 31, in speaking of sparrows and hairs on our heads, God is in control. And he cares. He's in control and he cares. And so we don't have to fear. The truth will be revealed. People cannot touch our souls, even if they can kill the body. And God is perfectly in control. He knows all things and he cares. His goodness is decisively towards us. It is running after us. When aside from these verses that I would focus on for a minute, uh, particularly verse 27 about this, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. There's some implications for us for ministry. And that is, this is a bold statement, but I think, I think it's here. Number one, I want to draw out three implications of these verses. Uh, well, let's, let me back up and make this statement first. I think Jesus expects our ministry to be louder than his. Wait a minute, Jesus was a very public figure. Yeah, but look what he says. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. 
And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Jesus expects the ministry and witness of the church to be louder, bigger, broader. One of the things the Thessalonian church, which if you don't know First and Second Thessalonians and you care about the church, you should. It's kind of like the ideal church in the New Testament. One of, the, one of the things Paul praises them for is that the word of God sounded forth from them. It's to be a loud ministry. But Jim Boyce uh, draws out three implications from this that I think are worth listening to. Number one, Boyce points out that first, if you're going to proclaim what Jesus has whispered uh, or said in the dark, you must first hear from Jesus. One of the things Jennifer says to her kids' ministry staff all the time is you can't offer what you haven't received. And so our first order of business is to hear from Jesus. Second, and I think importantly, you must speak only what you hear from Jesus. We don't get to add or speculate. We're not imagining things. Since we're already on this unpopular topic of fear, we may as well just let it all fly. It's why I'm worried about imagined representations of Jesus in the form of film media. I'm not saying it's absolutely wrong, but if you spend more time watching TV shows about Jesus than you do about the Bible, then you are dependent upon somebody else's speculation. That's dangerous territory. Be very careful of that with your kids. And thirdly, we must speak what Jesus says even if the world hates us for it. Because that's where this verse is put, right in the middle of persecution. We, we say, we, we first hear from Jesus, then we repeat what Jesus says and only what Jesus says, and then, if we're persecuted for it, well, we go back to point number one. That God is, or I guess point number three of the, the previous section, that God is in control and he cares. And so first, the first reality of gospel ministry, of Great Commission ministry, is that opposition, even persecution, is normal. The second reality is that fear is not fitting for believers because God is good and he is in control. And thirdly, we see that Jesus must be your first love. Look with me at verses 33 through 39. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set man against his father and against his, uh, and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies of those, will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life for my sake will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Simply put, you must love Jesus before anything else. In verse 33, we see that we must love Jesus more than public opinion. Verse 32 as well. We, we can't get, deny Jesus for the sake of, of public opinion. Verse 34, security. We must love Jesus more than our security. Because he has not come to bring peace, but a sword. Verses 35 through 37 indicate that we must love Jesus more than parents or children or our own household. 
I've told my kids for a long time, my, my, about my only hope for them in regards, of marriage, in regards to marriage is that they would marry somebody who loved Jesus more than them. The greatest gift you can give your children is to love first the Lord and then your spouse and then your kids. And then verses 38 through 39, well, Jesus rounds it out. It's not just public opinion or security or parents or children or our our own household. We must love him more than anything. And if he is who he says he is, and I believe he is, If he is the eternal son of God, our creator, who took on flesh, not only to show us who God is, but to die in our place, to to live righteously the life that we didn't live, couldn't live, and then to die for us so that we might be reconciled to God, doesn't it stand to reason that there is no other option than to love him above all else? I think it does. And the fourth reality of gospel ministry, of great commission ministry, is that there are rewards to be gained. Verse 40, whoever receives me, uh, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives me receives a prophet because he is a prophet. Uh, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because, excuse me, he is righteous, will, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. There's a, a whole lot of um, speculation about and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, sh- I shouldn't use the word speculation. There's a whole lot of interpretations about what each of these persons is in receiving you and they receive me. That, that seems pretty evident. But what about a prophet or a righteous person or uh, a little one? And, and I'm not sure trying to split hairs on all of these is super profitable for us this morning. But I think there's, pretty, there's two very obvious things that we should pay attention to in this text. First, to receive one's agent is to receive the individual himself. So to reject the messenger is to reject the one who sent the message. And to receive the messenger is to receive the, the person who sent the message. To receive a prophet is to receive the message that a prophet brings. To receive the message is to receive Jesus, and to receive Jesus is to receive the Father. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. It's a package deal. It's all or nothing. We either receive the message, the messenger, his Christ, and the Father, or we receive none of it. But it all goes together. And you you can see, to some degree, Jesus is letting us know how important the message that we carry is. Because there is a direct connection between your mouth and the ability of people out there to be reconciled to the Father. 
But second, it's not just that to receive one's agent is to receive the individual himself. Second, from the apostles, that is the prophets here. I think that's who that's a reference to, by the way. But from the prophets to the righteous person, all the way down to uh, the, the little one who receives a cup of cold water, everybody's service in the church is important. Now, why do I specifically say in the church and not in the world? Well, because of this. Uh, Verse 42, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. It's a little harder in English to see, but I think in Greek it's pretty obvious that the he is a disciple is directly connected to the little ones, not the one giving the water. And so the motive behind giving this little one a cup of cold water is is because they are believers. In other words, I think one of the, the, the second reality that Jesus is getting at is that inside the church, everybody's service in the church is important and everybody gets served. We don't prioritize service to people based upon what they give or don't give in terms of uh, how, how big and visible and public their gift is. We, we could talk uh, at length about this from 1 Corinthians, but everybody in the church is equally important, and everybody gets served. There isn't to be a distinction in service, but there is a motivation, and that's because he is a disciple. We serve people just because they belong to Jesus. I, I can't imagine what the life of a church would be like if everybody walked through the doors wondering what they could give to somebody else. What if we didn't wander in five minutes late and beeline out as fast as we could, but we lingered to have spiritual conversations, to do something of spiritual benefit to somebody else? What if, what if you made it your aim that you weren't going to leave the building until you had heard from and prayed for one other person? What's going on in your life? How can I pray for you? And then instead of just saying, I'll pray for you and never praying for you, doing it right then and there. What if we engaged in growth groups or adult Bible fellowships with the purpose of not thinking, what am I going to get out of that, but what might I give to someone else? I think... I think we would see a vibrancy in spiritual good at Trinity that maybe many of us have never been familiar with. But from the greatest to the least, service in the church gets rewarded in the kingdom. And so does gospel proclamation. And so great commission, mission, ministry is decisively inside the church and outside the church. And both get rewarded. And both are important. And we don't prioritize somebody because of their ability to give, whether they're young and can do big things or not. I want to close our message today. Wow, we did pretty good on time. With uh, Jim Boyce's final words on this passage. So I'm going to share you the words of somebody else. 
Jim Boyce said, these words were spoken nearly 2,000 years ago. And it is through obedience to them that Christ's followers have taken the gospel of salvation from sin by his death throughout the world. It is because of these words that the gospel is being presented to you now. In Christ's name and by his authority, I say to you, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Acts 16.31 And in Christ's name and by the same authority, I also say, reject Jesus Christ and you will perish forever. I cannot make the matter any clearer than that. Heavenly Father, That is the clarity of the message, that to trust in your Son, in his life and his death and resurrection, is to have salvation now, though we will not realize it fully until eternity. It is to be ushered into the kingdom and to be forgiven now, so much so we don't have to fear what anybody can do to us. But to reject you results in our bodies and souls being destroyed in hell. And Lord, we thank you that, that even though you are just and you give the just punishment for sin, That in Christ, your justice can be met as he receives our punishment and reconciliation and favor given as we receive his reward. May we cherish him above all else because of what he has done for us. May we marvel at his beauty and his power and his glory and his goodness. And so be saved. And so, have our fears removed and be freed up to to do the work of the ministry that you have called us to. To not be worried about persecution and opposition because our hope is not in this life, but in the next. May we find a deep and abiding joy in serving the saints and sharing the gospel with sinners. For your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name, amen.